Uh, it's so good to be back with you guys in this space. Uh, so yeah, it's just a, and we have a new partition to boot. Uh, it really feels great to be back with you, and I just want to encourage you to, just to really, I, I, need, I mean, as I'm singing here and as I'm praying with y'all and even listening to announcements and listening to Justin, I just am reminded of the importance of the means of grace, the regular means of grace that God gives to his people to feed us and to keep us standing firm in the grace that's been delivered to us once and for all through Jesus Christ, as Paul talks about here. So just want to encourage you to prioritize, not to get a gold star, because you don't need to come to be saved. Christ saves us without condition through his own effort, but we get to come together. We get to, we need this. We need to feed at the table. We need to hear the word preached. We need to gather with one another and praise God and confess, and to do that during the week in homes, as Bubba said. So I just want to encourage you, um, really prioritize the regular means of grace so that not just so that you can have all Christian friends, but so that you can, as the church, go into a dark world and, and be salt and be light, because that's why, that's why God has saved us, to know him and to, to make him known, so, which I know you do. So it's just so good to be back with you. Um, we are just going to continue on in this series uh, in Galatians for the next couple weeks, and then we're going to close, close the series off and, and move on. So I want to chart a course in, in the wake of Harvey between... And in the wake of the various disasters and, and things that, that come our way from time to time, um, cataclysms of one sort or another, uh, want to chart a, a way as a church between not being a weather vane that just turns automatically with everything, with every uh, blow of the wind, not being that, but also not being tone deaf to what's happening. So we had a special gathering last week, um, really focusing on Harvey, and, and even this week as well, the text itself the center, the center point is to love your neighbor as yourself, which is so appropriate, and it's not an accident. It's providential that God's given us this text, but he speaks through his word, and we're going to continue to walk through his word as we, as we value just going through uh, book by book um, together. It's, um, it's a priority for us. So today, I'm just going to talk about Galatians 5, 1 through 14, and how Christ has freed us to love. God has freed us to love through Jesus Christ. Um, J.C. Ryle um, he said, since, since Satan cannot destroy the gospel, he has too often neutralized its usefulness by addition, subtraction, or substitution. And this is what, you know, Christ, Satan cannot destroy the gospel, but he can neutralize and hinder its effectiveness by adding to it, by taking away from it. And that's what Paul continues in this book of Galatians, as we've been in this book for, I don't know, it's been so disjointed, I've lost count now, but seven, eight, nine weeks We've been walking through it, and he's saying the same thing. He's punching the same place, the same punching bag, over and over again. You cannot add to the pure gospel of Jesus, which is that God saves us completely through the work of Christ completely, and we apprehend that by faith. There's nothing we can do to add to it or take away from it. So, but Satan loves to pervert it. And so uh, Paul comes up against this, these teachings that you believe in Christ, but also there's a little bit of the law you have to keep too. It happens to be circumcision. So that little plus, Jesus plus equals what you really need. And Paul would say, no, Jesus plus equals nothing. And Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Okay, so we're going to unpack that again. He says it in a slightly different way. Um, basically, the big idea here is that Paul is telling us that we have two options in this text. In life, regardless of whether we're religious, irreligious, okay, we can keep the law ourselves, or try to. That's what he starts with. And we'll see where that leads. Or we can let Christ keep the law for us, which he has done. 
The former, trying to keep it ourselves, leads to being severed from Christ. That doesn't sound too good. In fact, it's the worst possible thing that could happen to us, to being cut off from Jesus. Keeping the law yourself, Paul says, leads to being cut off from Christ. But letting Christ keep the law for us leads to being freed completely. Not to do whatever we want, not freed to live a life of license, but freed to live a life of love. Um, so we're going to jump into that now. And the first point is, is simply uh, us keeping the law. And that's what Paul starts off with. He says, you wanna, you wanna, let me tell you where that leads. Us trying to keep the law. If you look at verse 2, um, Paul says, Why will Christ be of no advantage to me if I keep circumcision? If I keep just one small part of the law. Yes, I believe in the gospel, but I'm going to keep a little bit myself of the law and try to measure up to God's standards. Why is this such a big deal? He just almost overreacts, it seems, in this, in this passage. Paul gives us two reasons in verses 3 and 4 why it's so disastrous for us to add circumcision or any law to the gospel. So in verse 3, he says, look, if you, if you keep one bit of the law and that becomes your way to God, you, have to keep, you can't just keep that one bit. His argument is you have to keep the entire law. Keeping one law means keeping all the law. James 2, verse 10, um, this is the first reason Paul gives. He says, James says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So if you keep the entire law perfectly, 99.9% of the law given to us in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, and you break one of those laws, you've, you've failed in the entire, it's as if you've broken the entire law. Okay, why? That seems a bit strange. And Paul goes on to say, it's because the law is of one piece. It's all connected. It's like a spider's web. It's like a, if you touch one bit of silken strand, what happens to the whole web? It all vibrates. And that's what Paul's saying, is the law is of a piece. And if you break one strand, the whole thing is damaged and vibrates because it's, it's one. It's the whole law. And he uses this phrase, the whole law, and again in verse 14, and simply, just looking at those two those two. Those three words, the whole and then law. So the whole, he's referring to all, at least all 630 commands in the Hebrew Bible. That's a lot of commands, and they're very specific about life, about loving God from the heart, and also on the outside, loving neighbor, and all the ways that that manifests itself in life, keeping all the ceremonial laws, everything. And the, the words the whole show us, quite simply, that it, it, he, doesn't, he doesn't see each law as divided from all the rest. It's, it's a whole piece, like a, like a spider's web, okay? But also, the word law, it's singular. He doesn't say keep, every, keep all the laws. He says keep the whole law. Paul sees the law as one, because it is one. Um, and it, it means at least the 630 statutes, but it also, it probably refers to the entire Hebrew Bible, all the narrative, all the poetry, everything, which law was a shorthand way of saying all that God has given us, specially revealed to us through his written word, which was the Hebrew Bible. Um, but also, it all comes from one source, Paul's arguing. All this law, why do I consider it a whole law? And if you break one, you break the whole thing, because it all comes from, from God, from one source. Listen again to the verse I just read in James 2.10. Okay, he says this, same verse. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Now hear the next verse, the context. He gives the reason. For he who said, 
do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So if you keep the adultery thing but then you murder, and Jesus shows us that murder starts in the heart, so if you hate your brother from your heart, who hasn't done that in this room? You've also become an adulterer, as it were. You've also broken that law. Okay, whoa, what? And what's the reason he gives? Interesting. You have to pay attention to the language. He's saying, here is the reason if you break one law, you break the entire system because every law comes from God. You notice how he says that? He says, if you break one, you break the whole thing for he who said, do not commit adultery also said. In other words, he's tying the law in its entirety and its connectedness into the God who gave the law. And he's saying, when you break one law, you offend all of God, who is the lawgiver, who gives the whole law. You don't, affect, you don't offend a piece of God, one 630th of God. You offend all of him. God takes it personally. It's personal when we break his law. It's personal. And again, it's not just an outward infringement. He cares about our hearts. He cares about the anger that we have toward our brother or sister. He cares about lusting after a woman. He considers that the beginnings of adultery that lead to adultery, okay? So this is both good news and bad news. It's good news because it means that our God, the one God who is, is per, he takes, he's a personal God. He wants relationship and he feels it deeply when we offend him and he feels it deeply when we love him. That is wonderful news. Because he's not a robot. He's not just some code in the sky. He's, he's, a one, he's a God that wants a relationship with us, and that is wonderful, wonderful news, which is why we gather together, which is why relationship is the most important thing in life, which is why every country song is about love or love unrequited. Because love is really the essence. Even if you're a Christian, non-Christian, religious, or religious, you know deep down love is what it's about. And so that's good news. The bad news, though, I think it's fairly obvious, and that is that we can't keep the law. And the fact that God takes it personally, um, that he cares deeply and that he's wounded deeply when we break the law is seriously bad news for us. Um, it's like a, wi- a wife walking in on her husband, um, uh, breaking troth with her, okay, breaking covenant, cheating on her. Not only does she care, should she care if she walks in on her husband being unfaithful, but Uh, if she didn't care, if she just kind of like lit up a cigarette when she walked in and cool and walked off, you know, and went and watched some TV, that we, if she didn't care and if she had that reaction, we would go, that's a sick person. There's something extremely wrong with her. That's a sign of her disease, of her unhealth. It's a sign of her health that she gets furious when she sees her lover that she's covenanted to breaking covenant with her. In fact, um, The two are directly connected. The more she loves, the more pure she is, the more deeply affected she will be at the violation of her trust in person. In some ways, her fury is a measure of her righteousness. And so it is with God. And that's what the whole Old Testament shows us, this wonderful news that he's personal, but this horrible news that he's personal. And we've broken his law, and he takes it seriously because he's loving, because he's pure. Because he has eyes of fire. And that is wonderful and horrible news. And there's this whole book in the Old Testament devoted to this idea. It's one of the minor prophets, and it's the book of Hosea. 
And he says, look, when, we, when you sin against me, my people, whom I've betrothed to myself, whom I've gone to great lengths to redeem and to pour my love out on, it is, it is as if you have cheated on me in covenant. And I take it personally because I love you so much and because I am pure and righteous and holy. Um, so the law, so that's, that's another reason, okay, um, that when we break one law, we break the whole thing, and that's another reason it's so serious and that Paul gets so worked up about this. Seems like an overreaction, but when we start to understand how well Paul understands the revelation that God's given in the Old Testament, we begin to get to see why he's so upset, okay? The law is one also because it's bound by love. Again, just sort of continuing on with this idea about the law really being about a lover and a law being an expression of the love of God to his people. It's bound by love. It's about love. It comes from a lover to his beloved, us, his people, whom he's redeemed. So John Frame, he's a Reformed theologian. He talks about this helpfully. Um, The unity of the law, he says, is one of love. And he just takes the Ten Commandments, okay? And then 800 pages later, he finishes his book. I mean, he spends 800 pages on the Ten Commandments. Um, Don't worry. I'm not going to give you. I'm just going to give you a couple points. Um, But in the preface to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5, again, where the law is given one more time, that's what Deuteronomy means. It means a second law or a re-giving of the law. Um, Put this here. In the preface, if you go at Exodus 20 and you read the Ten Commands, it's not just do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this. It's a story. And and it's it's a preamble, which is a story, but the preamble is about what has happened previously. God made us for himself. We rejected him in the garden. All creation cracked. We were severed from him. He went to great lengths to redeem his people, and he brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. He saved them at great cost to himself, as it were. He came down, and he told Moses at the, at the, mount, the mountain of Sinai, at the burning bush, don't worry, I will be with you. I am. That's where that name comes from. I am with you. I will be. The Hebrew can mean either one. I will be with you. I am with you. That's what his name means. His name means uh, I am with you. And so this God, he gives that right before the law in Exodus 20. He gives that preamble. He doesn't just say, do this stuff. He shows that the law is personal. He says, I have brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand to be my people at great cost to myself. I've set my love upon you. I'm not giving you a law to be redeemed. I've redeemed you, and now I'm giving you the law to live, okay, to live well, to live according to the only way there is to live. And so when we, he's showing us that when we break the laws, again, we are being unloving to God, and Frame spends 800 pages showing how that's the case. Um, So, for instance, the Eighth Commandment, don't steal, if we steal, we're hating our neighbor. We're, we're taking someone else's things that are rightfully theirs. And when we hate our neighbor who's made in God's image, we're hating God. So that's just one short example of that. Um, and, you know, if, you, if you're sitting here today and you're saying, man, I, that's fine, I get that, that makes sense, but I don't sign up for this whole Hebrew Bible thing. I'm not a Christian. I'm not even religious. I don't know why I'm here. Um, I'm glad you're here. But I don't want you to feel like you're off the hook. Because, um, you know, a lot of times I'll hear people that don't believe in God, they'll say, uh, yeah, you know, um, I live the best life I can, I don't believe there's a God, uh, it's fine, there's no offense, you know, no offense to him, uh, if, if he does exist, I don't believe that he does, and then they go on. How, I mean, as if to say, like, 
if someone walks into a room and you are ignoring the fact that they're there, pretending as if they don't exist the whole time, okay? And then you go on to say to somebody else, like, uh, yeah, I'm sure, I, I, I was pretending they were there. I, I didn't even see that they were there. Um, I'm sure it didn't offend them at all. I'm sure it didn't hurt their feelings. Of course not. Like, if you pretend someone doesn't exist and they're in the room with you and they're doing things for you and yada, yada, and they ought to be the center of your attention, but you're acting as if they don't exist, of course that's deeply offensive. Um, much more so with a God whom the scriptures tell us has gone to ultimate lengths to save us, um, who's come down here and who's rescued us and who's laid his life down for us and has given that word to us in the scriptures um, so clearly. And then just to say, like, you don't take it personally. I don't believe you exist. Um, and, okay, yeah, the scriptures say that you came and you gave everything to redeem us, but um, I just don't believe that. That is, to, to pretend that that, that we can be indifferent to that sort of thing and that that isn't deeply offensive to a God that loves us with all that he is and that has done everything to show us that. Um, no, whether you're atheist or whether you're a devoted religious person, Paul's saying um, we're in trouble. We're in trouble based on trying to keep the law or pretending that God doesn't exist. Either way, we're in trouble. Um, so that's the, that's the preamble to the Ten Commandments, to the Decalogue. The first commandment, what's the, we start off, okay, the first one, it's the most important one. What is the first commandment? It's basically, love me first. God says, look, it's not just a list of stuff to do. He starts off the list by saying, you shall have no other gods before me, besides me, next to me, in front of me. I want all of your affection, and if you give me all of your heart, mind, and soul, and devote yourself to me, which is what I created you for, all your other love will trickle down, as it were. It'll work. Love for neighbor, love for self, love for family, love for stranger, love for enemy. And if we're doing those things, if we're, doing, if we're loving God and our fellow man, um, then all the other laws are going to be kept. All the other laws are going to be kept. Um, Jesus was asked of the greatest command, and he said, love God with all, all that you are. And the Jews call that the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. And he said, on this on this law, all the law and the prophets hang. The whole Old Testament, the whole Hebrew Bible hangs on, depends on this law. So if you can think of like a tree with a big branch, that is love God with everything that you have. And every other one of the laws, that everything that God requires grows out of that. It's all attached. So there's a sense in which if we keep that, we keep all the laws. We keep the whole law, which is why Paul says what he does. He says, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you're keeping the whole law in verse 14. Um, and, he, and Jesus goes on to say, the next is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. If you love God truly from the heart, you will love your neighbor. You won't cheat on your spouse. You won't lie. You will keep the Sabbath, and so on and so on. And most of you might be too young. Some of you might be too young to remember this, but Reagan, Ronald Reagan's uh, trickle-down economics, you know, and whether or not you agree with him, like his idea was essentially in simplified form, if you, if, uh, if you give tax breaks to the top bracket and to the, those that are producing and creating and yada, yada, then um, every, all, all the rest, are, it's going to trickle down to the rest of society. It's going to benefit eventually the rest of society, okay? And that's essentially what, again, whether or not you agree with that economic policy, some people hate it, some people love it. Um, that's essentially what Jesus is saying. That's essentially what Moses is saying. That's what God's saying through Moses. That's essentially what Paul's saying. He's saying if you love God with everything you are and you love your neighbor as yourself, the rest of the laws are going to take care of themselves. And Augustine, the 5th century theologian, 
he basically says the same thing, but he calls it rightly ordered loves. Rightly ordered loves. If we love God first and next our neighbor, then the rest of things are going to take care of themselves. Okay? Um, but there's a problem. Again, we've talked about the problem, but again, it's, it deepens. Luke 10, 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What's written in the law? Have you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Wow. Okay, so just do that. Just love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. Just do that and you'll live. Seems like good news, but I hope you can tell by now that is a serious problem. It's impossible. I'll just give you four quick, again, we've covered it basically, but four quick reasons and just four short words in this text as to why that's so problematic for us. To try to do as a means to getting to God, as a means to measuring up to God, okay? Um, The word all, okay? Love God, not just love God, love God with all that you are in four different ways. All of your mind, all of your strength, all of your emotion, all of your affection, all of your time, all. That word all means that we break that all the time. When, when, was, when, when, in, when was there five minutes where you were doing that? Inside and out, where you were loving God with all your heart. I've never done it. Um, the, the word as, love your neighbor. Not just love your neighbor. I wish you'd stop there. No, love your neighbor as yourself. And I mention this a lot in this series because Paul keeps banging the drum. Love your neighbor as yourself. When was the last time you loved your neighbor? When was the last time you thought about your neighbor with as much affection, as much care? You cared for your neighbor in the same way that you cared for yourself. Maybe you've done it for half a day, five minutes. I rarely do for an entire lifetime. And this is what God requires to love your neighbor, that little word, as yourself. If, I feel like if a hundred of us did that in the city, it would be, it would be a different city in 10 years. I mean, it's such a tall order, and yet it's how God made us to be. But we can't keep it. The word neighbor, so all as neighbor. Jesus says um, in the Gospels, he surprises everyone by saying, someone says, who's my neighbor? And they were trying to justify themselves. Like, surely you're going to say it's this Jew next to me that looks just like me, and it's fairly easy to love and believes what I do. No, he said, no, it's, it's, the, pers- it's the Samaritan. It's the guy that is completely different from you, that's apostate. That, um, that hates you and you hate him, that's your neighbor. So essentially, everyone and anyone, enemy, the people that we go out of our way to not be with, okay, the person that hates you, whatever it is, the person that thinks completely differently from you, that's your neighbor. Do we love those kind of people as ourselves all the time? And then finally, love, the word love. The word love isn't eros, it's not a, it's not a, um, a sexual love, it's not... Um, just sort of like, it's not having affection for. It's a deep sacrificial, it's the word that God uses for himself. It's a sacrificial, self-giving love. That kind of love all the time for God and neighbor. Man. So John Frame goes on to say that because the law is one, because it's a unity, because it's a whole, a singularity, five, a 5% violation makes us 100% rebels. Um, just, one, just as one adulterous relationship, as I've said, destroys marital integrity. It breaks the covenant. Just one. You don't have to do it three times or ten times. One of those breaks covenant. And what God has brought us into, his people into, is a covenant. So that's why in verse 12, Paul says, I wish those who were telling you that you must be circumcised to be saved would keep the knife going 
and emasculate themselves and castrate themselves. And I love how Bubba, I mean, that's, that's like, what? I mean, that's, Bubba just read it so respectfully and, you know, uh, however, whatever the verse is in verse 12, um, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. You know, so calmly like, no, Paul's, Paul's shaking as he writes this, you know? And that was, that was, that was a very calm, uh, respectful reading, but Paul is furious. And we can see that his fury arises out of love because if we go down that path, it severs us, Paul says, from Christ. It severs us from Christ. Um, it means doom for its practitioners because the law is one. Um, so in verse 3, he's saying that we must keep, if we're going to try to keep one law, love Jesus, accept the gospel, then try to do one thing in addition. You have to do this, though, as well. He's saying you've got to keep the whole thing, and that's just not possible because the law is summed up in love God with everything you are and love your neighbor as yourself, and we can't do that. We fall so far short. Um, but in verse 4, Paul is saying that um, if you require the keeping of the law to be saved, whether it's circumcision or another law, okay, um, you have chosen works and refused grace. In other words, you've chosen your own works and your own effort to get right with God and refused the work of another on your behalf. You've refused the work of Jesus Christ in your place for you. That's what grace is. Grace is by faith appropriating the work of Jesus Christ for you. His perfect obedience in life and his perfect obedience in death and payment for your sin. That is what faith does. It apprehends the work of Jesus for you. It's saying, no, even even adhering to one law is saying, no, I'm going to do it myself. That wasn't enough. That's what Paul is telling us. And he's saying, look, again, here are two short reasons why that's a terrible idea. One, we can't do right things. Okay, I've already talked about that. Okay, I don't need to talk about that anymore. We can't, from the heart, obey even two commands that sum up the rest of the commands like God wants us to. We fall short. But secondly, even if we could, just bear with me and say, hypothetically, okay, we, from this point forward, we can do that. Let's just say we can, even though we can't. The second reason it's a bad idea is that even if we could, our keeping the law perfectly from the heart would not erase all of the violations, all of the covenant breaking, all of the adultery that has happened in the past. It wouldn't erase it. And uh, even though certain theologies say that, oh, your good deeds can outweigh your bad, what kind of God, if we call God holy and perfect and just and not able to countenance sin, which if he's not, he's not God. If he just kind of sweeps evil under the rug, what, just let a little bit of what Hitler did go. Seriously? No, God, that's not the picture of, we get of God in his revelation. That's not the picture Christ shows us on the cross. Sin has to be paid for. Um, our good deeds can't outweigh or erase our violations. And that is a big problem, and Paul sees that. So he says, this in effect, this holding to circumcision, severs you from Christ. And he's using colorful language here because circumcision was a a cutting off of the foreskin of the male penis at eight days old in the Jewish custom, in the Jewish law. And what he's saying is, if you sever that piece of foreskin and say, okay, I'm good, that plus gospel equals I'm good, Not just to obey it, but to obey it as a means of being right with God, to save yourself, okay? Um, You are cutting yourself. When you cut that off and count that as in your account with God, you're cutting yourself off from Christ. You're cutting yourself off from the one who was cut off for you. 
Okay. So that's the second reason he gives. So what's our circumcision before we move on to, and I'm going to skip the second point and just fold it into the third, okay? But how do we do this? What's our circumcision? We hear circumcision, we're like, it was a big deal to Paul, I get it. They were adding to the gospel, but we don't, we don't struggle with that. Um, it was doing something in Jewish culture that made you, to their minds, a Jew, and that made you a good Jew, and that helped you in God's eyes. So what are some of those for us? I mean, there are lots of them, right? Not, a lot of them are nots. Not drinking, maybe. I mean, that's a bit, most of us don't sign on for that, but we've seen that in the past. Not drinking, um, certainly not drinking to excess is a, drinking, drinking to excess is a sin, but, but in our culture, in the Southern Baptist culture and other cultures and religious culture, sometimes drinking at all is a sin. So not drinking, um, not cussing, decent moral behavior or being known as being a decent moral person, having a daily quiet time. Are these all good things? Absolutely. Knowing your Bible, being baptized, walking the aisle, saying the sinner's prayer. Or if you're irreligious too, again, you're not off the hook. There's a litany of things that you have um, that, that are part of our zeitgeist today. You know, helping your neighbor, um, helping them clean out their house, um, um, being tolerant, not, not judging. Um, there are a litany of things, even for the irreligious, that are accepted and acceptable. Maybe not being too serious or radical or fundamentalist about anything, okay? So there are these litany of things, too, for the irreligious. And um, if we are holding to any of those things to make us right with God at all, in addition to what Christ has done, Paul says, you have severed, listen to me, friends. He's talking to us. This is, you can't get more serious. You have severed yourself from Christ. If you are looking to any of those good things to make you right with God, you are compromising the gospel and you are endangering your very soul. But there is a better way. There is a better way. Again, Christ keeps the law in your place. I'm gonna fold that into the last point, which is the better way is that we're freed to love. Why are we free to love? Because Christ keeps the law for us and thereby enables us to keep the law and gives us a desire to keep the law. So um, if you look at verse 14, Paul says in verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, and we've just been talking about that. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that comes out of Leviticus, the third book in the Old Testament, Leviticus 19.18, I believe it is. But um, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says that fulfills the whole law. So is Paul anti-law? No, not at all. The law is good. It comes from God. It comes from his very mouth. He wrote it, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. He wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger, as it were, on the mountain uh, in Exodus 19 with Moses. Uh, and he gave it to Moses. The, the law comes from him into reflection of his character, but relying on that law, trying to keep it so that we can be right with God, that's never what the Hebrew Bible intended for us. It's never what the law itself intended for us. Um, so he's anti-law keeping as a means of salvation. He's not anti-law. He's saying, look, the sum of the law is to love your neighbors yourself. That's what I want for you to do, but you can't get there by trying to do it yourself. You can't get there by relying on your own efforts to be made right with God, okay? So again, the zeitgeist um, in our culture today of this, N nobody in our culture right now, at least they wouldn't admit to this, would, would say that this, the summation of God's good law in the Hebrew Bible, love your neighbor as yourself, is a bad thing. In fact, we've seen a lot of it in Harvey. We've seen a lot of it in the wake of Harvey, as somebody said earlier. We've seen a lot of People, I think Justin, getting in there, we've all seen it, mucking out houses, getting on boats, 
you know, running mission control from Facebook or whatever, doing whatever we can, filling bags full of groceries and diapers, we've seen a ton of loving your neighbor as yourself. So nobody in our culture, everybody loves that, but only the Christian has the worldview and, and the, the revelation from God himself to be able to account for the goodness of this. So that, I think that's one of the things that, and I want to unpack this briefly, but that we need to be challenging our neighbors with in the wake of Harvey as they're open to, help, to loving their neighbor and perhaps to the things of God, maybe for the first time ever, maybe for the first time in a long time. They're soft in some ways because of this catastrophe that struck. Um, helping a neighbor in need is embraced by everybody right now, but Darwinism, for instance, a pervasive, you know, everything came out of a primordial soup, and where'd that come from? Where'd the first thing come from? No idea, but I know there's not a God, okay? It's a materialist philosophy, okay, worldview. Everything came from nothing, not sure how it got here, but oh, there's no God, and there's this, this evolution through whatever sort of mechanism, okay, that things keep on progressing and progressing and progressing, and um, it's what's the virtue? There is no, there's no ground in that sort of worldview for any absolute virtue, okay? And it's, it's really just uh, utilitarianism, and it's a survival of the fittest, um, and self-interest and self-preservation is the highest value. You see how this is directly opposed to what people know to be right, which is love your neighbor as yourself, and sometimes and a lot of times that means making sacrifices for your neighbor at the cost of yourself. And do you see how only Christianity has an undergirding for and a worldview for and a philosophical system for and a God who's revealed himself such that we can say with our neighbors, not only is that good and right, friend, but our religion, and our, if I can use that word, and our religion alone, the revelation of God himself through the person of Jesus Christ provides us with a grounding that says giving yourself away at cost to yourself for your neighbor, what we've seen during Harvey what we want to see more of. That's what Christianity gives us, that value in spades. So what our society rightly values but can't provide a basic system for, Christianity both embraces, completely embraces, and philosophically supports. Again, creation began good. God made all things good, and he made man and woman the crown of his creation. But then we disobeyed, which led to our fall, but also the fall of everything that they were given dominion over and charge over. So all creation cracked, okay? And then you have, you have sin, but you also have storms. That's why we have Harvey. It's because of our sin, because of our rebellion. All creation is in chaos and disarray because of our rebellion against God. Um, God could have stayed aloof from all this and been well within his rights. He warned us. He told us. He created us good. He's a perfect God. He, is, he could have stayed in heaven far, far away from all of the mess that we'd made. But Judeo, the Judeo-Christian scriptures give us a very different picture. I was, um, I was driving past a, um, I was driving past, I was turning off of 610 South, and I was getting to Richmond, and I took Hidalgo, and I was just south of Williams Tower, so that way. And I s- turned left, and I saw to my right this, this uh, penthouse, this sort of really nice, looked like a townhome unit, and there's a lake sort of in front of it in the park, and it's about five or six stories, and that, that you know, top story is a big penthouse, sweet, nice glass, it looks out on downtown, and it's beautiful, and it's high, and, you know, I just imagined quickly as I drove past it, this was last, this is last week, 
So it was after the storm, but we're still, of course, mopping up everything in Houston tonight. We all remember where we were during the storm, and if we were here in Houston, how we just felt helpless and how scared we all were. And, and uh, I just thought, you know, I imagine myself in that, it's like the people in that penthouse, they were on the fifth story in this nice, secure building. I mean, they were untouched personally by the storm, and they wouldn't have had to ever leave if they'd had enough supplies and come down and get into the mess and help. But we've seen a lot of people that whose homes were destroyed and whose homes were not destroyed get in, like Justin did, like a, probably every single one of you in one way or another has done, like our city has done, so proud of Houston, like get into the mess. And what we value and what we've seen and what we know to be right is at the center of our faith because we have a God who, though he could have stayed aloof, came down into the storm of our mess. John 1 says, entered our darkness, the light of the world, was rejected by those who, whom he created and nailed to a Roman cross, suffering the wrath of God against our sin and against our law-breaking, um, all by his design, all to take the punishment we deserve and to give us his righteous law-keeping from the heart. He he didn't just come down and live among us. He come down, came down and died the death, endured the hell, and became the sin that is ours and that we deserve. He went to the lowest place. He entered the storm, the storm center of the wrath of God. Uh, Luke 9, Jesus, he's on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Moses and Elijah appear there to speak with him about, it says, his coming departure. The word in the Greek is his coming exodus. It's talking about the cross. Why the word exodus? The word exodus refers back to the central salvation event in the Old Testament. When God, again, through a mighty hand, brought out through no help of his people, but at great cost to himself, as it were, brought out his people out of slavery into a land of plenty. And that was a picture, we're told, of a greater salvation to come that would set his people free, not just from physical slavery, but from sin, from death, from hell, from all this destroying creation, from within and from without. And um, Jesus said, it says that he is speaking, he was speaking with Moses and with, and with um, Elijah of his coming exodus, of his coming departure, okay? He would lead his people out of slavery, out of sin, out of death, out of hell. How would he do that? Fast forward to Luke 12, 50. Jesus says to his disciples this. He says this. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. How did Jesus lead us out of slavery? By being baptized, by being sunk, by being covered in the waters, in the fire of the wrath of God Almighty for our sin. He was dunked in that fiery flame so that we wouldn't have to be. He was burned up to cinder. Body and soul, I don't know how. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we could be brought in, so that our sins could be taken care of, torn apart, as we're about to celebrate here with the Lord's Supper, so that we could be made whole. Can we add anything to that salvation? Dare we try? No. Um, you know, fundamentalism is in the doghouse these days. Radical Religion, let's just temper it a little bit, is what we're told in our society. But I want to just say that it matters. You can't lump all fundamentalism, all radicalism. Radical comes from the Latin radix, which means root. 
all religion that gets to the root of things together because there are different roots. There's a difference between a root that emerges, that the religion emerges out of where the, the, the author of that religion wages war against his enemies and kills them and a religion that arises out of a leader who lays his life down for those that deserve to die and gives himself away. And that is loving your neighbor as yourself. And what Paul is saying is when we understand that, when we believe and receive that by faith, and when his spirit comes into us and his record becomes ours and his sin payment becomes ours and takes care of the problem that we have before God, um, we are empowered to love our neighbor, not because we have to, but because he did and his spirit is inside of us. And we alone have a philosophical system that supports that, that, make, that shows, yes, this is good. And we are actually able from the heart to do it, not through a love that we drum up, but through his love, through his person, given to us by his Holy Spirit. Um, I just want to, as I close, just mention a few points of application um, for us. You know, thinking about Justin's testimony again, and I, I sent out a short video this past week to y'all, um, just a, a video of encouragement, a word of encouragement about signals of transcendence. But Houston, as we all know, is in a time right now where um, one of my mentors talked about signals of transcendence. Some people, they're hard to God, they're hard to the things of God and to the gospel and to Jesus a lot of, a lot of their lives. And there might come a moment of pain or of disruption or of something where they're soft for a little while because of a trial or a tragedy or whatever, or a question that they have. And he calls this a signal of transcendence. And we, as Christians, need to be looking for these and attuned to that so that when that happens and when that's pressing in on someone and when they're asking transcendent questions, maybe for the first time, why am I here? Who am I? What's my purpose? Where am I going? Is there a God? We can be ready to press in with hand and with mouth with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, we have a whole city that's at that place right now. And it's not, it's not going to last forever. If you look at, you know, we, if some of us are old enough to remember 9-11, we've all lived through it, but, or all except the babies, but some of us remember it. And, th- and churches were full for the first few weeks, maybe months, and then after that, you know, people will forget. We as Americans have some of the shortest memories. And one huge danger, one, let's press into the time, it's now. Let's strike while the iron is hot, but also... Um, one of the dangers, I think, is that we will just race to get back to what was. And our neighbors will do the same. Just to rebuild rather than to reflect and to pull back and to go, wait a minute, let me assess, let me take inventory. Whether or not I was flooded. But let me take inventory and ask, and let's help our neighbors, our coworkers, the shopkeepers that we, that we patronize, lead them to asking questions. How are you? How was your house? Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, great. I'm glad it was dry. You know, and ask, helping each other to ask the questions that matter all the time, but that sometimes we're only sensitive to when a storm hits. Let's not be so quick to rebuild. And I'm not just talking about a house, okay, just to get back to the place we were, but rather to reflect, to pause, and to say, okay, what, what, what does God have for me in this tragedy? He's here with me in the midst of this. What is he teaching me? What does he want me, does he want me to live differently? And Jonathan Edwards has, um, he has a few words on this in a sermon 
that he entitles Heaven, a World of Love. One, he says, share, give away excess. If you have two tunics, as Jesus says, give one of them away. So this is a time where I think with all of our stuff, we're kind of reflecting on that in a new way. Do, you know, do I, do I need to be living lighter and living cleaner and being more generous? Um, he says, indulge not yourself in the possession of earthly things as though they were to satisfy your soul. This is the reverse of seeking heaven. Again, there was going to be a temptation to recover, but instead let's reflect and, re- and reevaluate. And Edwards goes on to say, if your treasure is here, hell awaits. Wow. Well, that's a two by four across the face to me. If your treasure is here, friends, hell awaits. This is the moment. This is the moment where God is, as, as C.S. Lewis said, with his megaphone of pain, rousing a deaf world. Okay? Um, so let the storm speak to us in this way. Um, he, Edward says, be content to pass through difficulties on the way to heaven. This is a reminder to us of the fact that this is not as good as it gets. We are, the, the universe is still groaning. Though Christ has come, he hasn't come again. He has not, he's making all things new, but he hasn't finished that yet. And Paul mentions this in verse 6. He says, for in Christ Jesus, excuse me, in verse 5, for though the Spirit by, through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We've been made righteous. The righteousness of Christ is weaving itself into us. We've been secured, and yet that salvation is working itself out, and there is a hope of things that are better that are yet to come, where all sin, all evil, all storms are going to be washed away, and we're going to sit down with God in the person of Jesus Christ, the man who has saved us, at a table and feast with him. And then the party really starts. So until then, we can press on, not trying to feel like we have to grab all the gusto, fixing our eyes on Christ and on the life to come, knowing that every seed that we plant here, that we plant by faith, it will sprout into an oak of righteousness, into something that will grow for eternity. So we, it just helps us to live balanced and patient and long-suffering and not trying to get it all here. And lamenting when we lose things, yes, but maybe a little less. Maybe a little less, because God is going to make all things new. Um, Okay. Lastly, guys, I just want to say this is a marathon, not a sprint. We know we're going to keep wearing that out. Just as as my people, as as the sheep that God has given to me and to Paul, I want to remind you of that. Your response has been amazing. Don't burn yourself out. We have to continue to work. We have to continue to care for one another and for our neighbors, and we want to pace ourselves, and we want to be in this for the long haul. And so we're going to be putting a couple things on the website as for directions. Your parish leaders are going to be um, helping and directing and pastoring as well. But we want to be serving, um, not every day probably, but you know whether it's once a week on a Saturday morning or once every couple weeks, whatever you work out is best. Um, and continuing to have this mindset until Houston is rebuilt, but also um, reflecting, reevaluating, helping our neighbors to do that, doing that ourselves. So we're here um, for you. Paul's exhausted. His house got rocked and, and washed out. Um, some of you are exhausted just from helping um, most of us were untouched, some of us were touched in the flood, but this is going to be a long road for all of us, but it's a huge opportunity as a church, and we as your pastors, we want you to pace yourself, um, we want you to know this is the, this is it, we're in, the, we're in this for the long haul, let's not, when everybody else forgets about it and goes back to work next week or whatever, and some of us already started to do that, go back to work, but continue to know that, that we're in this, um, and so, uh, on that note, That's one of the reasons we're finishing Galatians next week.
and we're actually cutting off chapter 6, because in two weeks we have the founder, the president rather, he might be the founder too, of Love 146, which is one of our partners. It has nothing to do with Harvey Cleanup. Uh, but, but it is uh, an organization that fights human, human trafficking, especially with children. It focuses on ending child trafficking. We're partners with them. That hasn't stopped. Human trafficking has not stopped just because Harvey came. So we want to remember that we are in this fight and, and life goes on. And so he's going to come and talk to us about that. And, and so we're going to continue to be uh, pressing on in all sorts of ways, but doing so realistically, acknowledging our limits, helping each other, loving each other, tending to the household of faith first. Because if we don't tend to each other first and love each other well, then people look in and say they don't even take care of each other. But conversely, Jesus says in John 17, John 13, they will know that I exist and that, and that I am Messiah and that I, I am true and that I have truly laid my life down and taken it up again. How? If you have a great apologetic, if you're really good at defending the faith with your words, no. If you love one another as I have loved you. Loving your neighbor as yourself first starts here. And if it happens well here, there will be a world looking at this time, inside, into this body going. And it's already started to happen. It's already started to happen. I've heard reports of it happening where people watch, um, you know, the bakers or other parishes uh, going out, serving neighbors, having people over to pray and feeding them and going, man, I want to, where do all these people come from to muck out this house? Like, oh, this is, this is our church. This is, this is my body. This is the body of Christ. Like, come on in. It will be a, it will be a witness to a weary world of the love of Jesus and of his existence and of his lordship. So let's take care of one another. Let's take care of our neighbors. Let's take care of our coworkers. Let's take care of our enemies. As Christians, only we have a philosophical foundation for what everyone knows is good, and only we are actually able to do this because it's been done for us, and so we can. Not we have to. We get to. So let's pray.